Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that we have the living word before us. And we ask that as we continue the study that we have been carrying on now for these past years, literally, that you will give us deep insight and understanding. We know, Lord, that it is the Spirit of God who opens the Word of God to us, that we might have understanding and that we might apply it to our hearts. So we submit this hour to you in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying, of course, that beautiful narrative concerning Joseph in Egypt at the time that his brothers come down to purchase grain, not knowing, of course, that Joseph is the man they have to deal with, not knowing that he is even alive. Joseph, in order to find information about his family, he recognizes his brothers when they come. And in order to get information about his family, he accuses them of espionage, which, of course, seems a little bit to us ludicrous. I mean, here are these Bedouins coming out of the desert. They're likely to be spies. <laughs> but, of course, Joseph has his purpose in all of this. And, and I noted to us last time that this would not have been a strange thought to Egyptians. Because the Egyptians that day were, uh, they hated foreigners anyway. They were very suspicious of foreigners. And so to them, the thought that these people could be, could be spies was not at all strange. And so we have Joseph putting all of his brothers in jail to, if you will, cool their heels, to not at all coin a phrase, obviously, where they think about what has happened to them and the point of, being, of them being jailed is so that they might know that Joseph is very serious about what he is saying. This is no joke. This is a serious matter. And after these boys, these men, having been in jail for these three days, in verse, 20, uh, verse 18 of chapter 42 of Genesis, Genesis 42, 18, now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear Elohim. I fear God. And I made the point of why he called him Elohim as opposed to Yahweh or some other term. Uh, Elohim was more generic. The other te terms would have been very specific. He'd have called him Yahweh, which he could have because he knew him as Yahweh. He would have been highly suspicious suddenly to the brothers because that was the covenant name of God known only to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the family. And, and no one else that we know of, is, anyway, would have known that name. And therefore, this would have been very, very strange to the brothers and caused suspicion. So he refers to him by the name Elohim. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And, of course, they did so. At the end of that same passage, which we finished last week, we find that he chose Simeon to bind and put into prison. And we talked about why he probably chose Simeon as opposed to others uh, last week. He bound him right in front of the, of the remaining brothers so that they would know that this is, again, a serious matter. And their brother is going to be locked away in prison for as long as they are gone. So it's obviously something they need to take home with them in their minds and share with their family. Today we 
pick up with verse 25 of Genesis 42. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? What would we say if we went down and bag of groceries? <laughs> and took it home and opened it up, and there our money was that we had paid for the groceries. We'd think, of course, first there had been a mistake. Second of all, we'd say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> but these guys don't say thank you, Lord. They say, what is the Lord doing to us? Without further delay, Joseph has ordered that the grain sacks of his brothers be filled with grain so that the brothers can be on their journey. They paid for their grain probably with silver, as we've noted before. Silver seems to have been the main medium of exchange in those days in terms of a monetary substance. And again, as I have noted, that silver was not in coin form because coins were not invented, as far as we know in history, until the 7th or 8th century BC. And it was not even invented in the Near East. It was invented over on the coast of the Aegean Sea by the Lydians. And the Greeks give credit to the Lydians for having invented the coin. So it's probably in ingot form or granular form, some other form besides coin. It probably was carried in little bags by each of the brothers, obviously. And these bags have been returned to them, unbeknownst to them, and placed in their grain sacks when they weren't looking. The scripture also tells us here that they were given food for their journey. Now, you, you, we might just pass right over that and think, well, you know, what big deal? But do you suppose that Joseph gave every traveler who came to buy grain food for their journey too? I hardly think so. And the brothers probably never even gave it a second thought, although they might have because everything about Joseph was strange to them. Everything he did, everything they, that he said was very enigmatic. And so this might have just added to their uh, their their. Un lack of understanding of this man. Or, as I said, they could have just passed it over thinking it was, you know, he gives everybody a McDonald's, uh, you know, joy box or something on their journey home. I, I think as the grains of sack were available, they loaded their donkeys very quickly. I think we need to note here that uh, as we look at this picture, we could become impressed with the idea, again, that we're only talking about, actually now that Simeon has been taken away only nine men and nine donkeys. I don't think that's true at all. As I mentioned before, when they left from Canaan to come there, they brought their servants with them, certainly, so that they would have a large enough group that they would be immune from raiding parties and, and attackers along the way. And so we're probably talking about several dozen men, counting their, their uh, servants, and several dozen donkeys here. And this, this great... I mean, after all, you don't want to go all the way to Egypt just for one bag of grain. How long is that going to last when you're feeding, what, it turns out to be 60-some-odd people back home? <laughs> How long does that last, especially when your primary food is the grain? 
So obviously we're talking about many animals and many men here besides the brothers. They were in a hurry to get out, as, out of Memphis as soon as possible because they were afraid that Joseph might turn his mind back to the idea of putting them in prison again. So while he's got this idea in mind, they decide let's load and let's get out of here. On their journey home, it says when they came to the lodging place, whether this was the first night, the second night, we're not sure. It could have been a little ways along the way, wanting to put as much distance between them and, and Joseph as possible. But when they came to the lodging place, wherever that was, we're told that one of the brothers opened one of the sacks, his sack in this case, one of his sacks, in order to feed the donkey. Now, you can believe it was not their common practice to, to feed the donkeys from the kind of grain that they fed to the people. But remember, we're in a drought, a very, very serious drought that is creating a seven-year famine that is literally desiccating the land. And so there is literally nothing for the donkey to eat along the way. The animals, of course, as you know, would graze as they went normally. And so he's, he's forced to feed the animal and certainly the other brothers. They probably all decided, all right, you take your sack. Let's only open one sack. We'll share it amongst the donkeys and we'll keep track. And, and then we'll make it up to you later on. And so the food is to be given to the animals from this, uh, from this sack. And when he opens up, he finds his money. And he runs to the brothers and he reports that he found his money in his sack. And we're told that they were alarmed. But you know what is interesting? From verse 35, when we get to it, we'll discover none of the other brothers ran to his sack to open it and find out if it was true for him either. Why? I think he was scared to death that it might be true. He didn't want to know. You ever in a situation where there's something you're sure is going to happen and you don't want to know it? You don't want to know about it? I think that they hoped that it was a mistake. But the scripture makes it very clear that these guys were frightened. And they were not a little frightened. Because you'll notice the wording. It says their hearts sank. Now the Hebrew word here for sank literally means went out of them. As if it melted and flowed right out of their being. They truly lost heart. And then secondly, the word used is the word trembled. And it literally means that they shook violently. It's the same word that's used later on in Exodus of the mountain called Sinai when God is up there speaking to Moses and it says the mountain shook. It's the same word. So these guys are quaking. I mean, they are frightened of what this might mean. So what do they do? They say, God's responsible for this. What is God doing to us? Now they're guilty in their hearts for what they had done to Joseph. And all of these things are adding to that guilt. It's, it's building up this sense that they have done wrong and God's not letting them off the hook. Notice, God is on their minds. They are not secular men. They have a sense that God is here only to them. God is not a positive thing right now at this moment. Life is becoming for them very complicated and in many ways very fearful. Verse 29. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us 
and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men, we're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Can you imagine the journey back? It, I don't think it was a particularly joyful journey as they traveled on their way back to Canaan. They had this foreboding in their hearts. And they knew they were going to have to share all of this with their father, and the father was not going to be happy because they could not come again for grain without Benjamin. And they knew how he hung on to Benjamin. When they returned, there was a family meeting, if you will, and Jacob was there as chief of the clan. And before all, they spilled the whole story out in awful living color. They were probably several days late getting back because they had been in prison for three days, for one thing. They had expected to just go, make a transition and transaction and come home. But they were several days in this process. And so they had to explain to their father why they were late. And it wasn't their fault. It's not because we got lost on our way to Egypt or that we were goofing off. This is what happened to us. Then they went to open all of their grain sacks, prepare them for you know, storage and then for usage in the days and weeks ahead. And as they did so, they all discovered that their money had been returned to each one of them. Again, does this cause joy? No, it causes great consternation. Because to them, the money is not important. What is important is their father, their, their brother Simeon in the land of Egypt, the, the confrontation they had with, <coughs> with Joseph over there. And, and what this might mean to Benjamin, this is what's of concern to them. They're not concerned about the money. <laughs> they, they would have been glad to give more money. When you're in a situation like this, money means almost nothing to you. Why was there money there? Well, I think one of the reasons that the money was in the sack was Joseph simply was not going to take money from his own family. No doubt about that. But secondly, I think his purpose was to cause exactly the consternation that they were feeling. To cause them to, again, wonder what is going on here. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. These guys are shaken up by this situation. And that is clear. I think what's important here is they're not just shaken up in the emotional human sense. They are convicted by God Almighty of their sin. They have lived with it for 20 long years. And it is surfacing like a mighty iceberg out of the sea. And they're crashing straight into this great iceberg. And they see nothing but disaster ahead. It's very, very important to see what God's going to do with all of this, though. Jacob, of course, <clears throat> cries out, You guys, what are you doing to me? You're depriving me of my sons, one after the other. First Joseph, now Simeon, and next Benjamin. We read from 35 on. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. 
And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben, <clears throat> good old Reuben, spoke to his father saying, You may put <clears throat> my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. Can you think of a more desirable thought? If I don't bring your son back to me, you can execute your two grandsons. Oh, sure. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Reuben is sort of the, the Peter of the Old Testament. Got his foot in his mouth half the time. Reuben, we have read back in the 49th chapter of Genesis, is called by his father, unstable as water. Reuben is the man who had gone in and had sexual relations with Jacob's concubine. Reuben is a man that his father does not trust, although he is the firstborn. And, and what he does here is very, very foolish, at least in his expression. I mean, his intent is right, but the way he expresses it is, is foolish. Now, as firstborn, he was primarily responsible for the welfare of the family under his father. He should have been the next clan chief. And, and so he's kind of expressing himself here. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy in charge here, so if I, I'll take Benjamin down, and if I don't bring him back, to you safely, then you can kill my two sons. Now, Reuben is trying to convince his father that he will take the very best care of Benjamin, that he will give his life for Benjamin, and that's fine. But the means of expressing it is, is, is you know, it, it displays a lack of understanding, a lack of really knowing what Jacob is feeling about the loss of his oldest uh, son by Rachel, Joseph, and, and the potential loss of Benjamin. He doesn't understand. Jacob responds by saying, you guys, if I lose Benjamin, I will literally die of sorrow. I'll go down to Sheol, to the grave, in sorrow if I lose Benjamin. Now, I think at this point it's really important for us, if we can, to put ourselves into Jacob's situation. Try to become Jacob in this situation. It must have seemed to him that his entire world was unraveling. Have you ever felt that way? I'm sure the thought came to his mind, where is the covenant God? Where is the God of my grandfather Abraham and of my God of my father Isaac and the God I've met? The God I met at Bethel and at Peniel, where is he? The God of the promise, has he abandoned me? We always have to keep, and I keep referring to this because this is the only way we can really understand this. He had no book to turn to. He couldn't turn to 2 Kings or John the Gospel or any place else to get encouragement. He had no written word of God, none. 
the first book of the scripture, as far as we know, was written by, I mean, we know it was written by, Gen, uh, by Moses, if Genesis was the first book. Some people say Job was, but we don't know that. The Pentateuch was, as far as we know, the first written word of scripture. And it's the one we're reading. And it wasn't written for several hundred years later. So there is nothing he can turn to except the memory of his encounter with God. And, of course, the witness of the Spirit of God to him at that time. But, you know, you and I can turn off the Spirit of God, can't we? We can quench the Spirit. We, we by our, 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 our emotional extremity, by our lack of faith, we, we can shut off our communication with God so that we, we don't even seem to be hearing him. We've all heard the expression, or maybe even have said it, that the Heaven seemed as brass, as it says in Scripture, or that our prayers don't go past the ceiling. That isn't true, of course, but sometimes that's the way it may seem to us. It's as if God is not there. Look at the situation. The heathen in Egypt have plenty of food. And here is God's man, and he doesn't have plenty of food. In fact, he's got to go to those heathen to buy the food, and so far it's cost him a son and may cost him another son. Where's God? Does he not see what's happening? All things are definitely not working out together for good, he could say. He would say if he had ever read Romans 8.28, uh-uh, it may be true for you or for Paul, but it's not true for me in this situation. But, of course, we have hindsight. We're looking back at it through the pages of Scripture, and we can say, aha, yes, it is. You may not see it, Jacob, but it is working out for your good. Because although God is allowing hard things to take place, and they are hard things to transpire in his life, he is bringing his people to a situation more wonderful than they ever could have thought possible. The spiritual healing of ten men the ten brothers of Joseph and Benjamin are in the process of being healed by God. And, of course, in addition, the restoration to Jacob of his beloved son Joseph, a thought beyond imagination to him at this time. Were those thoughts in his mind? Certainly not. All he could think of was the horror of the fact that Joseph has been gone 20 years and now I may lose Benjamin. I've already lost Simeon. We're, we're in famine. Our flocks are melting away. They're dying by the thousands. Had he had Job in front of him, he could have said, yeah, Brother Job, I understand. From Jacob's viewpoint, all that had happened the previous 20 years could not be seen as leading to good. And when we put ourselves in the place of Jacob, we have to think sometimes what's going on in our lives does not seem to be leading to good. One ill thing after another. And that's where the role of faith comes in. We have to believe that God is going to do what he has promised. We often look at our own situation as Job did at first, as Jacob did in this situation. We often cannot see what possible good comes out of sickness or a traffic accident which, which maims, or the loss of our job, 
or some other thing which the world counts as tragedy, and we tend to also. I mean, you and I probably have been watching this, this thing in Rwanda. It's incredible. It, it's beyond belief. And we think, how can possibly good come out of this? Well, of course, the promise of good is to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Tragedies do strike this world. God, in His way, does usually bring good out of it in, in a general sense. Hopefully, if nothing else, it heightens our awareness that there is a little country in Africa called Rwanda and there's a neighbor called Burundi and that there are many other nations in Africa where people are in great need and we need to pray for them, if nothing else. And we need to recognize how much we have in light of what they have not. Ever sit down to a meal and say, Oh Lord, if this meal could be that of all those people. As Christians, we must search our hearts as Joseph's brothers were forced to do. See all the heart searching that's going on? They may be blaming God, but that's because they're conscious of the fact that God is looking at them and God has dealt with what they have done. And they are convicted. If they weren't convicted, they wouldn't even think about God here. But they're convicted in their spirits. And they're having to search their hearts. And we need to search our hearts in these situations to, uh, also to see that we are walking with God and that we are being obedient and that we're not harboring sin. It's possible for us as Christians to harbor sin in our lives, to just kind of whitewash something and say, no, it's not really sin. God understands and I'm not going to call it sin. You know, there's, there are certain denominations which just call these things mistakes. They don't call them sins because once you become a Christian, you're sinless. Well, I don't find that to be a reality in either life or scripture. They're not mistakes, they're sin. And we are sinners. But we need to look at our hearts and be sure that we're open and confessing every day and not hiding anything or, or whitewashing it and saying it's not sin when it is. Then we must trust God, as Job did, to do what is best. God is perfectly trustworthy, and God is perfectly righteous. Everything God does is for our good, and we must remember that. There is a tendency for us sometimes to almost have a Mohammedan view of God. The Mohammedans view God as capable of good, but also capable of evil. You see, Allah to the Mohammedans is not limited by anything. Now, we read scripture and it says, with God all things are possible. But we limit that because we know with God, sin is not possible. Evil is not possible. God is not capable of doing evil. But Allah is. And we have to make sure we don't have an Allah view of God. Because our God is not capable of doing evil. Because goodness is an attribute of God. Which means that's what makes up God. He is good. He cannot do anything that is not good. Now we have to define good in God's terms, not in the world's terms. The world says, well, good is what uh, produces pleasure. And pleasure is what? The absence of pain. So if I have no pain, then I have pleasure, and that is good. And so the world says, that's good. Well, in God's view, sometimes pain is good. 
because it produces righteousness, which is far more important than pleasure. The world cannot see anything valuable or good in a young 18-year-old, beautiful, talented young lady breaking her neck and becoming a quadriplegic, right? And yet you and I all know that Johnny Erickson Tata has been a great blessing to thousands of people. And God has used her for good. And I would, I've not heard this literally from her own mouth. I may have, but haven't re remembered it. But I'm sure she would not go back and undo it all so that she could live a normal life. I think she is grateful for where she is and what God has done, and she would not choose any other way because God has used her in miraculous and wonderful ways. And we have to see it that way. We have to see good from God's definition because there are those who tell us, even in the Christian circle, that good is only being healthy and wealthy. If you're not healthy and wealthy, you're not a godly Christian because you're not trusting God. There's a four-letter word for that. It starts with B and goes U-L-L. That is not what the scripture says. Because Jacob suffered, Job suffered, David suffered, Solomon suffered, Paul suffered. You read the writings of Paul, how many days he was you know, in the deep and how many times he was lashed and all these things happened to them, we'd say, oh, that's good. Hmm. Yeah, right. The, human, the world would not call that good. But in God's eyes, it was good because this is what was making Paul into the man of God that he became, drawing him to God as never before. Even if we go through the valley of the shadow of death, it is for our good and for that of others, even though we cannot see the good at the time. I wrote down uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. You've all read this passage, and we have before too, but I think it's appropriate here. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that's where faith comes in. Faith comes in for those things which are not seen. What God says is good. We must believe as good. When, when Paul says these momentary light afflictions, remember he is speaking from the basis of a man who had been lashed many times, who had been imprisoned, who had been nearly drowned in the ocean, who had been chased from city to city, who had to be let down from the walls of Damascus in a basket to escape in it for his life. I mean, we're not talking about somebody who lived in flowery beds of ease, as the term is sometimes used. We're not talking about somebody who lived in a palace and had everybody serving him. We're talking about a man who was a servant. And as a servant, 
He knew what suffering was in this life, and most of us have not yet faced the suffering that Paul faced. And yet he calls it momentary light affliction. For Johnny Erickson Tata, it's, it's a lifetime from 18-year-old to as, as long as she lives. And, and others of us have suffered from physical, emotional, spiritual afflictions of some sort for a long time. And that may go to the point of our death. Does that mean God is not good? No. We have to always remember, God cannot do anything other than good. Because that is what he is. And God cannot be other than what he is. Well, if you have page 71, we'll be moving on to chapter 43 of Genesis. This next uh, subject, uh, topic here, Joseph's brother's return to Egypt, uh, incorporates the next three chapters. And of course, it gives us the heart of this drama that we have begun to look at. Chapter 43, I'd like to be, read the first 10 verses. Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel, notice, sudden change here. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? <laughs> but they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we, how could we, could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father Israel, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now, we could have returned twice. That kind of harkens back uh, the first part of the uh, chapter we read before where the famine was on the land, and they hadn't gone to Egypt yet, and, the brother, and, and Jacob said to his brothers, why are you standing around looking at each other? Why aren't you going down to Egypt? <laughs> so now Joseph, uh, jo Judah is coming and saying, you know, if you hadn't dilly-dallied around so long, we could have been to Egypt twice by now. Kind of a tit-for-tat thing, I suppose. Scripture says the famine was severe in the land. The famine continued unabated. Because God is in this, because God is using this for His glory and to accomplish His purpose. We're not talking about a famine or a drought like the one we've been having in California where you have a bad year and maybe a kind of a bad year, then a kind of a good year, then kind of a... I and mean, we're talking about year after year, month after month of no rain. Severe drought. The fields were dried up to the point that there was nothing left because the animals had eaten 
what there was. There was no relief in sight, and the grain supply of the family was running low. I think there are months between chapter 42 and chapter 43. Several months pass as they consume the grain that they brought back with them. I mean, after all, we're talking about a two-week trip to, to Egypt, a two-week trip back. So you don't just run down there every two weeks, <laughs> you know, like we do the local store. So they had to bring back enough grain to keep them supplied for several months. When they first returned, you remember we just read, Jacob flatly refused Reuben's offer to guarantee the safety of Benjamin if Jacob would allow Benjamin to go with him and his brothers to Egypt. But months have passed and a crisis point has been reached. Although certainly their flocks had been hard hit. Now remember, Jacob and his family were herdsmen. They had sheep and goats and donkeys and probably camels. And we might say, well, with all that, what in the world do they need to run down to Egypt and buy grain for? Well, I think there are at least two answers to that. First of all, I think the flocks were dying off very rapidly. The, there was insufficient grain, I, I mean grass, left now for these huge flocks. And I think the sheep, the goats, the donkeys were dying by the hundreds, not only their flocks, but other people's flocks. The flocks were shrinking. The animals individually were shrinking and becoming tough little skinny things. But I think a second reason and probably more important is that people cannot live on meat alone, especially children. From the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden until today, the primary source of food for human existence has been grain of one sort or another. It is not for nothing that bread is called the staff of life. And that means, of course, grain, whatever form. It doesn't mean Wonder Bread, you know, what you buy down there, just eight essential vitamins or whatever. Grain, whatever kind it is, that is the staff of life. Today, whether it be rice or wheat or barley or uh, rye, whatever the grain might be, corn, millet. That is the essence of life for the majority of the human race. What is the most eaten grain on planet Earth today? Rice, okay, rice. More people eat rice than any other grain. Something like two-thirds of the population of the Earth is dependent on rice today. There are, of course, a few people who survive on seal blubber a few nomads who, who eat, uh, drink the blood and drink the milk of their cows or whatever. There are a few people who survive on sweet potatoes and cassava and things of that nature. But in every case, those are fringe societies. Those are relatively primitive people, few in number, who live out on the edges of the majority of the human race. They're people who live in harsh climates, like the tropical jungles or live in a desert, or live in the Arctic. Very, very small societies. The vast majority of the human race is dependent upon grain of one sort or another. When you have starvation on the magnitude that's occurring in Rwanda, do we ship in <clears throat> carloads of beef? You'd kill them. You have to ship in grain, 
wheat, rice. For Jacob and his family, of course, we know rice was not the medium. It was wheat and barley. These were the staples of their existence. And it was clear that the supply that they had would soon be exhausted. And therefore, Jacob orders his son, sons, go down to Egypt and buy grain again. This is an order from the clan chief. Go down to Egypt and buy grain again. I think by this time, Jacob said, whoop, time has passed. My, my sons have probably forgotten that Benjamin was demanded. Or their need is so great that they'll be willing to go to, to feed their family, even without Benjamin, to give it a whirl, give it a try. I think it's possible that Jacob thought, God will not require this of me. God will have mercy on me, and God will change the heart of the man. And when they get down there, he'll have compassion on them and give them Simeon and give them grain and not require Benjamin. But the brothers had stood before the man, and they knew he was serious. And they knew that he, he had said, I will not even give you an audience unless Benjamin is with you. I won't even see you. You haven't got a chance of getting any grain unless Benjamin. They knew this. Jacob didn't. He hadn't been there. And so he was hoping, of course, that the brothers would be willing to try it anyway and that God would go before them and enable it to happen without Benjamin. But Judah now steps forward. This is probably a point which we better stop today. Judah is the man of the hour. Not Reuben. Not one of the, of the other brothers. Brother, brothers. <laughs> brothers. <clears throat> but Judah. Judah steps forward here. Why Judah? <coughs> well, I'll tell you next week. There are reasons why Judah. And we've looked at it a little bit in chapter 37, chapter 38. When we get to chapter 44, we'll see again. Why does Judah? It's the one who steps forward and becomes God's man. Is it because, oh, he's a man on his knees all the time and he's the evangelist of the tribe? <laughs> right. Well, we read about him, right, with his uh, daughter-in-law, Tamar. But God's at work. And, and we'll see next week why God chose this man.